welcome to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds, a weekly podcast for pharmacists, physicians, physician assistants, and nurse practitioners who are interested in learning more about clinical pharmacology topics. I'm your host, Garrett Schramm, Director of Pharmacy Education and Academic Affairs at Mayo Clinic. To claim pharmacology CE credit or to get a copy of presentation slides, visit ce.mayo.edu slash pharmacy podcast. Biologics are safe and effective treatment options for inflammatory bowel disease, or IBD, including Crohn's and ulcerative colitis. However, many patients with IBD may not respond to biologic therapy, and loss of response may lead to disease relapse and progression. Biologic therapeutic drug levels and autoantibody monitoring is a growing area of practice and may present a more cost-effective approach to evaluate therapy and optimize dosing strategies compared to empiric escalation of therapy. Ensuring that therapeutic drug monitoring is utilized and interpreted appropriately is key in optimizing therapy. Ensuring that therapeutic drug monitoring is utilized and interpreted appropriately is key in optimizing therapy. Here to walk us through therapeutic drug monitoring for IBD medications is Dr. Sarah Chase, an internal medicine pharmacist at Mayo Clinic. And before we start to get into the presentation today, I just wanted to provide some context to this presentation and have all of you picture a typical patient with Crohn's disease that we may encounter. So imagining that there's a younger patient in their 20s with more severe disease um, coming in. They've previously been on different biologic therapies that they've failed. They've been switched to another one, and now we're having issues with that um, as far as their disease goes. When we look at these patients and they get more complicated, we kind of run out of options. Currently, there's only seven biologic therapies that are approved for Crohn's disease patients. We know that these patients are diagnosed fairly young and they're going to have many years ahead of them with this disease that they have to manage and the disease will progress over time. So that will be kind of the purpose of our talk today is to talk about where we can fill in that role and help optimize these biologic medications through therapeutic drug monitoring for these patients. Here are some of the learning objectives that I will cover today. So first, I'll plan to review the pathophysiology and current treatment strategies for inflammatory bowel disease. I'll define the clinical application of therapeutic drug monitoring and the, how we use those with the biologic therapies. And then lastly, we'll talk about optimization strategies for the biologic medications based on therapeutic drug monitoring results. To start off today, to review some of the pathophysiology and normal physiology of the gut, this diagram on the slide is representative of our normal gut physiology, with the bottom part of the slide representing the lamina propria, the inside of the um, inside of our GI tract, whereas the upper part of the diagram is representative of the intestinal lumen, so the inside of our um, inside the GI tract. So you see the bacteria there that are colonized with our normal microbiome as well as potential pathogenic organisms. Um, we have our epithelial cell layer, which helps provide that barrier between the intestinal lumen and our GI cells. That epithelial layer is coated with a mucous membrane, which further helps protect those epithelial cells from the bacteria in our gut lumen. That mucous layer is produced by goblet cells within the epithelial cell lining. We also have panneth cells within this epithelial cell lining. These help to excrete antimicrobial peptides, so that further helps dampen any potential harm from the bacteria that are located within our gut. 
We also have plasma cells within our GI cells that produce IgA, which helps maintain that commensal relationship between our microbiome and our own cells and prevents infection from any pathogenic microorganisms that might be in our GI tract. And then also within our own intestinal immune system, we have various macrophages, T cells, and dendritic cells, all of which work together and activate interleukin-10, which is one of our anti-inflammatory cytokines. So altogether in a normal gut, this is what all of the mechanisms in place that help us maintain homeostasis and avoid infection from some of these uh, and, uh, bacteria in our GI tract that potentially could cause infection. However, when we look at a patient with IBD, something happens that disrupts their mucous membrane layer. We don't officially know what causes this. There's a lot of theories out there as far as genetic abnormalities, environmental exposures, but something disrupts this mucous layer within the GI lining. We also get disruption of that epithelial cell layer. So we have disruption of those tight junctions between the cells. So that just allows more opportunity for uh, bacteria to enter into our cells. We also get redu reduced number of panith cells. So we're having less of those antimicrobial peptides that are being produced. And altogether, this will increase our own cells exposure to those bacteria present in our GI tract. This in turns turns on those pro-inflammatory mediators. So we get macrophage activation, which will release TNF-alpha, interleukin-6, 12, and 23, which are all pro-inflammatory cytokines. We also get dendritic cell activation, which downstream activates various integrins, which again are just more pro-inflammatory mediators. So overall, we're getting this very pro-inflammatory state in IBD. So patients will have these ongoing symptoms and worsening progression of their disease if it's left untreated. We do, of course, have medications, though, that we can use to target some of these pro-inflammatory mediators. Specifically, in our talk today, we are just focusing on three main classes, so that's what I'll focus on here. But we have the anti-TNF-alpha agents that will block the TNF-alpha components of the pro-inflammatory pro cytokines. Then we also have interleukin-12 and 23 inhibitor with ustekinumab or Stellara. And then we also have an integrin inhibitor, uh, vetalizumab or Intivio. Now moving into what IBD is and the different definitions we have. So IBD does include our two main disease states that we think of, which are ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease. There is also a third category of indeterminate for those patients who maybe don't fit both categories or it's more difficult to differentiate their disease state. Um, however, for our talk today, we will focus more on ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease. When we compare ulcerative colitis and Crohn's, so they do have a lot of common, common characteristics. However, we do have some things that make each disease unique and helps us distinguish between the two. Starting with ulcerative colitis, so this disease primarily affects the colon or the large intestine. intestine. This typically spreads in a contiguous matter, so you expect it to start in one location and then start spreading up through the GI tract. Looking at the various layers of our GI tract that are affected in ulcerative colitis, this primarily affects just the mucosa layers, so the innermost layer of the GI tract. Um, so not quite as severe where it's going into those deeper tissues of the GI tract. Common symptoms that we see with ulcerative colitis include bloody diarrhea, abdominal cramping and pain, tenismus, which is urgency with defecation, um, Common complications that occur with ulcerative colitis when diseases get more severe include toxic megacolon, fulminant colitis, and then also complications leading to surgery. Comparing that to Crohn's disease, so Crohn's disease, as 
thought to be a little bit more on the severe side because it can affect anywhere through the GI tract. So from mouth to anus can be affected in this disease. We don't see this contiguous spread with Crohn's disease. We get more patchy appearances throughout the GI tract. So there might be disease in the large intestine, and then we have disease up in the esophagus as well. This is more severe in the fact that it also can impact more layers of the GI tract. So we can have the entire GI tract affected, which leads to some of those common complications that we see in Crohn's patients, which includes strictures, fistulas, development of infections and abscesses. Um, so a lot of the complications that can occur with those patients. There are common symptoms with ulcerative colitis with Crohn's disease. Um, so we do still see the abdominal pain, cramping, still see diarrhea. Um, ulcerative colitis is more associated with the bloody diarrhea as compared to Crohn's disease, and then also reduced appetite appetite and weight loss. Looking at our goals of treatment for IBD, you can think of it sort of on a spectrum. So we can have less stringent goals where we're looking more to induce symptom control. This would be evaluated through various clinical symptom scales that we have, or you can look at it more on the stringent side where we're actually wanting to achieve mucosal healing. Achieving mucosal healing is associated with some better outcomes, such as reducing risk of recurrence, hospitalization, surgery, and disability. And the reason I'm bringing this up today is that it does come into play when we talk about our different trough goals for therapeutic drug monitoring. So we can target higher trough levels for some of those more stringent goals of therapy. To summarize what agents we do use for IBD currently, so this table summarizes the oral agents that are available for IBD treatment. They're typically thought of as more of our older treatment options. Um, so the thiopurines and the methotrexate, for example, are not typically, they're not recommended to be used as monotherapy in either disease, but would typically be used as an add-on to biologic therapy. There's one exception with mesalamine is that is still a preferred option for mild to moderate ulcerative colitis as more of a first-line option. Moving on to our focus for today, so we will be looking more at this category of drugs. So this table summarizes the injectable, biologic, and small molecule treatments that we currently have for IBD. We have the anti-TNF-alpha agents. Today we'll be focusing primarily on adalimumab or Humira, infliximab, Remicade, which can be both used for ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease. In the IL-1223 antagonist section, we'll be focusing on ustekinumab or Stellara, which can be also used for both ulcerative colitis and Crohn's. And then in the integrin inhibitor section, we'll be focusing on vetalizumab or Intivio. And we'll just be focusing on those agents because those are the ones most commonly used in practice that we are using therapeutic drug monitoring for. The other agents don't have, as far as the JAK inhibitors um, and the Ozanamod, do not currently have therapeutic drug monitoring available. To focus on the four agents that we'll be talking about today and to talk through the dosing scheme, um, we'll start with infliximab. So in general, there are two different phases of treatment in IBD. So we start with induction therapy, and then patients will move into the maintenance phase of treatment. In general, the, the agent that's used for induction is continued into the maintenance phase for IBD. So with infliximab or Remicade, patients receive a five milligram per kilogram dose at week zero, two, and six, and then are continued on maintenance every eight weeks with the same dose. This one is only available in an IV infusion. When I look at adalimumab or Humira, this one has an induction phase of 160 milligrams once, and then two weeks later, 80 milligrams, followed by 40 milligrams every four weeks for maintenance. This one is available as a... Um, sorry, every other week, not every four weeks for the maintenance strategy or maintenance phase. Um, this one is available as a subcutaneous injection, so patients can use this one at home. 
For IL-12 antagonists, we have ustekinumab or Stellara. The induction phase of this medication includes a one-time dose of 520 milligrams that is an IV infusion, and then eight weeks later starts the maintenance phase with 90 milligrams. And these are available as sub-Q injections, so patients can do those at home. And then our integrin inhibitor, we have vetalizumab or Antivio, which has an induction phase of 300 milligrams at week zero, two, and six, and then followed by maintenance every eight weeks. This one is only available as an IV infusion. This brings me to my first polling question. So as Dr. Thompson said, you can use the poll EV app or go online to answer this question. The question is, which of the following is true regarding the treatment of IBD? Okay, so I will say that I will agree with the majority with option D. So option A is incorrect because adalimumab or Humira is approved for both Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. Option B is incorrect because patients, when they're started on induction therapy, are typically continued on that agent into maintenance, the maintenance phase of therapy. C is incorrect because the oral options with azathioprine and sulfasalazine are not our preferred options in initial treatment of IBD. And then D is correct because infliximab and adalimumab are two TNF-alpha inhibitors are approved for both Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. So now we'll move into more talking about therapeutic drug monitoring. And to start off with a very basic definition, when we look at therapeutic drug monitoring, this is utilizing the measurement of drug concentrations in the blood to monitor for the safety or and or efficacy of a medication. We do this a lot commonly as pharmacists, of course, with many medications. When we look at IBD specifically, the therapeutic drug monitoring that we have is used to evaluate efficacy of the medications. And then there's also a component where we are checking for antibody levels while we're checking for drug levels. The drug level that we look at in IBD is a trough measurement, so this is based on the half-life of the medications. Thinking of these medications, a lot of them do have very long half-life, so when there's eight weeks between doses, that's something to consider when we're looking at when to draw the trough level. Antibodies are also measured. This helps us to determine if immunogenicity has developed to a medication, and then we can look at the titer to sort of evaluate what our next steps are if a patient has, evaluated, has developed antibodies, and we'll talk about that in the coming slides. Other things to consider with antibodies and why we care about their development. Antibody development is associated with subtherapeutic or undetectable drug levels. Also is associated with primary non-response, secondary loss of response, as well as infusion reactions. So patients can have more symptoms of infusion-related reactions secondary to the development of antibodies to the drugs. The purpose that we are doing therapeutic drug monitoring for these agents is that specifically in IBD, we know that up to 30% of patients don't respond to their initial therapy. We also know that over time, about 50% of patients will lose response to the therapy that's chosen for them. So this is another avenue for us to further assess and evaluate their medication. This also helps us look at those therapeutic drug levels because we know that subtherapeutic levels are associated with inadequate response. And then when we get the results of the therapeutic drug monitoring, this helps us assess what's going on and why the patient's failing therapy, and then helps us make decisions about what to do next for the patients. And then lastly, helps us evaluate for the formation of those antibodies. In addition to the antibody levels and the trough levels that we look at, there's also various pharmacokinetic factors that can impact our drug levels and trough levels. Specifically, there's factors that can increase biologic clearance, and that includes the development of immunogenicity. So actually development of antibodies has been linked to subtherapeutic drug levels. 
Low albumin, increased BMI are also associated with lower drug levels. And then patients with really severely active disease can have lower drug levels as well. Things that we can do to help decrease biologic clearance, so help us increase those trough levels, would be a con concomitant immunosuppression. So this is where some of our oral agents can be of benefit for these patients to help increase their trough levels and decrease the risk of developing immunogenicity. So all of this matters because this helps us determine what type of failure is occurring for a patient. So the different types of failure that we have are summarized on the slide. The primary loss of response is most commonly associated with a mechanistic failure of the medication. So this occurs when we have adequate trough concentrations present, but the patient's still having active symptoms of disease. They don't have any signs of development of antibodies to the drug. And why this happens is that we're likely using a medication that's not targeting the inflammatory process that's causing disease. So if we're using, for example, an anti-TNF agent, but their disease process is driven more from an interleukin type interaction, we're not targeting what is actually causing disease in the patient. Looking at our secondary loss of responses, there's non-immune-mediated pharmacokinetic failures and then immune-mediated pharmacokinetic failures. On the non-immune-mediated side, that's more focused on those various pharmacokinetic factors that can lead to increased drug clearance. So with this, you'll see subtherapeutic trough concentrations, but no antibody, antibodies that have been developed. This is secondary to those factors that increase drug clearance from pharma, a pharmacokinetic standpoint, such as a high inflammatory burden causing more drug rapid, more rapid drug clearance. On the immune-mediated side, this is where we see the subtherapeutic trough concentrations secondary to the development of antibodies against the drug. We can look at this further, and we'll talk about it in upcoming slides, how that we evaluate the high versus low antibody development. But this is that your body is, has developed these neutralizing antibodies against the drug, and that's why we're having subtherapeutic levels. Also, when we're looking at therapeutic drug monitoring, there are different types that we can do. So the conventional dosing is what's done before we had therapeutic drug monitoring. So this would be empiric dose escalations just based on patient symptoms. So we're not necessarily understanding what's underlying what's going on with the patient, but you would just escalate their dose because they're having symptoms. We also have proactive therapeutic drug monitoring. So this is where we would proactively measure those trough and antibody titers on a routine basis. And this would be regardless of disease activity. So more from a proactive monitoring standpoint. Then we also have reactive therapeutic drug monitoring that we can do. So this is when we would check those drug levels and antibody levels only after a patient is showing that they're having clinical failure to the medication. When we compare for the therapeutic drug monitoring proactive and reactive, Proactive is a much more controversial topic in the GI world. It's recommended in some clinical scenarios. However, there are some randomized controlled trials and meta-analyses that have shown no benefit, but we will discuss those in later slides. On the reactive side, this is strongly supported by various societies and less controversial of a topic. When we're looking at targeting our drug trough, there's many things that we need to consider. So this is a little bit more complex than just our standard vancomycin, for example. We know what trough we're targeting there. There's a lot of different factors to consider when picking a trough that we are targeting for each drug. And they're not necessarily based, it's based on a lot of clinical evidence and it is very nuanced. So of course we have to consider what biologic therapy we're using because the trough will vary depending on the drug that we're using. 
also considering a monitoring strategy you're using. So are you monitoring from a proactive versus a reactive standpoint? Reactive when a patient's having more severe disease, maybe we need to target higher trough levels. Also looking at their disease phenotype. So having just a basic inflammatory disease versus a more severe phenotype such as fistulizing C Crohn's disease, we would target higher troughs in those patients with more severe disease. Also considering treatment phase, so induction versus maintenance. Typically in the induction phase, we are targeting higher trough levels as compared to the maintenance phase. Also considering your desired response. So back to our goals of IBD treatment, those more stringent goals of mucosal healing typically are associated with higher trough levels. And then also disease activity. So patients who are having very active disease are very sick, we might target higher trough levels in those patients. And then just from a pharmacist standpoint, something to consider when we're drawing troughs and something that we should be considering when we're always drawing troughs for medications is looking at those other factors that we should be evaluating. So looking at the timing of the lab draw, is this a true trough or was it drawn at an incorrect time that we can't necessarily use that? Also considering patients' medication adherence, have they missed a lot of doses or have they been really adherent? And because some of these medications are ones that they would use at home, Evaluating their injection technique as well is important just to make sure we're not missing some of those pieces that would affect their trough levels. This brings me into my second polling question. So based on the description below, you can choose what mechanistic or therapeutic failure is occurring. So we have a patient who has symptoms of active disease. They have subtherapeutic drug levels, but they do not have antibodies that have been detected. All right, it looks like we have a slam dunk on this question. So I agree with the audience with question or answer B. So this would exhibit a non-immune mediated pharmacokinetic failure. So we know that it is non-immune mediated because there are no antibodies developed. So that if there were antibodies present, that would indicate a, an immune mediated pharmacokinetic failure. So that's why C is incorrect. A is incorrect because with a mechanistic failure, we would expect therapeutic drug concentrations with symptoms of active disease. And then D is incorrect because the different pharmacokinetic failures are more so considered a secondary loss of response. So now going into, we have our therapeutic drug, moni we have our therapeutic drug monitoring results back. What do we actually do with the medications that the patients are on? So this table summarizes the interventions that can be made based on those drug level results and antibody results. So starting at the top, looking at the mechanistic failures, when we have therapeutic drug levels, but no antibodies, the intervention that we would make would be to switch out of that drug class entirely. Because again, the mechanistic failure indicates that we are targeting some sort of pro-inflammatory um, pro-inflammatory pathway that's not causing active disease in the patient, and we should be using a drug outside of that class. Looking when we have subtherapeutic drug levels, so this is when we can have non-immune-mediated and immune-mediated, starting with the non-immune-mediated side, so we have subtherapeutic drug levels and then no antibodies present. The intervention that we would make in that case is to escalate the dose, so we know that there's something going on from a pharmacokinetic standpoint that's causing subtherapeutic drug levels. So in that case, we have a good argument to increase the patient's dose. On the immune-mediated side, we look at the antibodies that are present. So we have subtherapeutic levels and there are antibodies present. There is sort of a distinction between high and low titers of antibodies. However, 
This is still up for debate as well because we don't have good definitions for what the exact cutoff point for high versus low antibodies are. However, um, you can look at if the antibody titers are very low, you would anticipate this, this is still an immune mediated pharmacokinetic failure. However, in this case, you could potentially overcome the development of those antibodies. So if a patient's asymptomatic from the standpoint of having antibodies, so they're not experiencing any infusion reactions with the antibodies present, you could consider dose escalation itself and then potentially adding on a thiopurine to help with that, mitigate the development of those antibodies. However, if a patient is symptomatic when they have those antibodies present, so they're having some of those infusion-related reactions, in that case, it would be more appropriate to potentially switch to another medication and then plus or minus add on the thiopurine. When we have the immune-mediated pharmacokinetic failure, subtherapeutic levels, and high levels of antibodies present, in this case, it would be an intervention to switch a medication, you can switch it within the same class potentially. If you do that, you should be adding on a thiopurine because we know that the patient has already developed antibodies to that class of medications previously, or you could just change to a new class entirely to avoid that. Looking at our agents that have therapeutic drug monitoring available, this is a summary of all of the agents that we can do therapeutic drug monitoring with. With our anti-TNF-alpha agents, these do have the most evidence for proactive and reactive therapeutic drug monitoring. Our interleukin-12-23 antagonist and integrin inhibitor do have evidence, but it's primarily for reactive therapeutic drug monitoring. The thiopurines do have the option to look at drug levels. However, this is a different camp of what we're doing with the biologics. This is used more so to evaluate safety efficacy um, with those agents. And then methotrexate, you can check levels, but it's not clinically done in practice with IBD quite as often. And like I said, specifically, we'll focus on infliximab, adalimumab, ustekinumab, and vetolizumab, because in practice, those are the drugs that we most commonly use this with. Now moving into our actual recommendations of when we use therapeutic drug monitoring and some of the evidence that's backing that up, we'll start with the anti-TNF-alpha agents, so infliximab and adalimumab. In 2021, the American Journal of Gastroenterology released an expert consensus statement where they provided some of the recommendations on what to do in practice with therapeutic drug monitoring. So they do recommend to perform reactive therapeutic drug monitoring in patients with a lack of response to anti-TNF-alpha therapy. And then in the patients with a secondary loss of response, they recommend doing dose escalation to reach at least a trough of 10 to 15 before you would consider switching to another agent. The reactive side of monitoring for the anti-TNF-alpha agents is supported by a lot of studies, so it's not quite as controversial of a topic. This is definitely not an all-inclusive summary of those uh, studies, but I just wanted to include a couple that looked at a, a few different outcomes. So the first study was a post-hoc analysis of the ACT-1 and 2 trials. This compared or looked at patients with moderate to severe ulcerative colitis and was set up to compare infliximab to placebo. One of the outcomes that they looked at was the Mayo endoscopic scores, and they found that levels, higher levels were associated with better scores overall. So they concluded that higher drug concentrations were associated with more better short and long-term endoscopic healing outcomes. The second study looked at actually evaluated therapeutic drug monitoring-based dose escalation versus non-therapeutic drug monitoring dose escalation. This looked at, it was a retrospective study that looked at patients with infliximab that underwent dose escalation. 
And they found for endoscopic remission, the patients that had therapeutic drug monitoring, reactive therapeutic drug monitoring completed, achieved those at higher rates as compared to the patients that did not have the therapeutic drug monitoring completed. And then they also found that patients in the therapeutic drug monitoring category were able to achieve those higher drug levels. And this, from this, we concluded that therapeutic drug monitoring is associated with being able to achieve higher trough targets and then also showing that that's associated with better outcomes. And then lastly, we have the PANTS trial, which looked at patients with Crohn's disease and receiving either infliximab or adalimumab. This was an observational study, so they were basically evaluating what factors are associated with primary non-response with these medications. And they found that suboptimal drug concentrations were primarily associated with non-response, but then also low drug concentrations were associated with the development of antibodies to the drug. So possibly a question that us not getting to these higher levels actually increases the risk of developing antibodies to these drugs. So to summarize that reactive monitoring for the anti-TNF alpha agents is associated with improved endoscopic outcomes. We know that we can achieve better, higher trough goals with reactive monitoring. And then we know that low drug concentrations predict treatment failure and then also the development of immunogenicity to the medications. Now moving to the more controversial topic of proactive therapeutic drug monitoring for these agents. So it is recommended by this consensus to use proactive therapeutic drug monitoring for anti-TNF agents, and that we should be also using it in cases where we are using reactive monitoring, changing therapy, then using proactive monitoring to ensure that our change that we made is was doing what we wanted it to do, basically. There aren't quite as many studies that support the use of proactive therapeutic drug monitoring, some of the ones that we'll highlight are the TAXIC trial that evaluated infliximab. This was a randomized controlled trial that included patients with both ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease. All the patients entered in as an optimization phase where they had their doses adjusted to reach a, des a designated trough target. And then they were randomized when they entered the maintenance phase. And they were randomized to receive dose escalation just based on clinical symptoms or based on trough concentrations. Their primary endpoint in this study was clinical and biochemical remission at one year. For that primary outcome, there's actually no statistical significant, no statistically significant difference between the two groups. However, they did notice that the concentration-based dosing or the proactive drug monitoring dosing was associated with lower frequency of undetectable levels and lower risk of relapse. Moving to adalimumab, we have the PALET trial. This was also a randomized controlled trial. This was more focused in pediatric patients with Crohn's disease that had had a previous response to adalimumab. Be patients in this trial were randomized to receive either proactive or reactive therapeutic drug monitoring. In the proactive group, you can see that they were checking levels during induction and then every, or at weeks four, eight, and then every eight weeks up to the 72 weeks, or just had reactive measurements done. And the trough they were targeting in this trial was greater than five. Their primary endpoint in this trial was corticosteroid-free remission. And looking at the results, the proactive group actually had a higher percentage of patients that were able to achieve that primary outcome as compared to the reactive measurement group. However, this is still up for debate, like I have mentioned. So one meta-analysis that came out in 2022 evaluated nine different randomized controlled trials um, that were comparing proactive therapeutic drug monitoring to conventional management. The PALET trial and the TAXIT trial were both included in this meta-analysis. Their primary outcome was looking at clinical remission at one year. 
And ultimately they found and concluded that there was no difference in clinical remission. Some other secondary outcomes that they looked at too was the development of anti-drug antibody levels, or sorry, anti-drug antibodies. And they found no difference between the reactive versus the proactive groups. And ultimately found that patients in the proactive group just ended up on higher doses of drugs. So they're ending up on these higher doses of drug without actually seeing these differences in clinical outcomes. However, some important notes to have and when you're considering evaluating this, the results from this meta-analysis, eight of these randomized controlled trials included patients in the maintenance phase. And a lot of these trials for patients to get into the maintenance phase had to have a clinical response to the induction phase. So I think there's a question of if we're excluding those patients that didn't have a clinical response, maybe those patients would be the group that would benefit from proactive monitoring where we target those higher troughs up front. Also in the maintenance phase, when we look at the conclusions of this study, we won't be able to apply those to the patients earlier on in their treatment course. Also just looking at the primary outcomes in the different studies. So the randomized controlled trials that were included all had very a wide variation of primary outcomes. So there was corticosteroid-free remission, clinical response, decrease in hospitalization. So I think it's hard with all the heterogeneity between the trials to say that overall we don't have good clinical remission. Also, a lot of these outcomes were, were reported over a wide variety of time, not just in the one-year period that was reported in the meta-analysis. So I think definitely additional considerations to have when you're interpreting these results. When we move into what we actually do with the medication to optimize the, medic the dosing, in general, for these biologic agents, you would decrease the dosing interval to optimize therapy, with the exception of infliximab. So with infliximab, you can either increase the dose for the medication, so going from the 5 milligram per kilogram dose up to 10 milligrams per kilogram, or take the route of decreasing the dosing interval. So standard doses are in the maintenance phase are eight weeks in between, um, but to optimize that, you could go down to four weeks between doses. And the table on the left does summarize the trough targets that are recommended uh, per the 2021 consensus, um, just with a note that in patients with more severe phenotype of Crohn's disease, you would target higher trough levels. But you can see earlier on in treatment, we typically target higher troughs, and then as patients move to the maintenance phase, we can target lower trough goals. Looking at adalimumab, so this follows our standard rule of we would decrease the dosing interval to optimize therapy. So on the maintenance phase, doses are given every two weeks, but to optimize that, you could give the 40 milligram dose once weekly. And then the target trough that we would that we'd aim for for adalimumab is 8 to 12. Now moving into our non-anti-TNF alpha agents. So for this talk, we'll just focus on ustekinumab or Solara and venalizumab or Intivio. This consensus statement does recommend to perform reactive therapeutic drug monitoring for these two drugs when patients have a lack of response to therapy. Most of the trials that we have for these non-TNF alpha agents are, I would say, less strong. They are more commonly associated with a dose exposure and response relationship rather than having those specific trials available that are evaluating the target of therapeutic troughs and associating that with outcomes. So the, for vitalizumab, one of the trials we have is the visible one trial. This was a phase three randomized controlled trial in patients with ulcerative colitis. This trial was initially set up to compare basically the subcutaneous dosing scheme for vitalizumab as compared to the IV dosing scheme compared to placebo. One of their pharmacokinetic outcomes that they looked at was the therapy, the trough concentrations that were achieved by patients. And ultimately, they found an association between achieving the ability to achieve clinical remission increased as the exposure to drug increased, and then also 
endoscopic improvements occurred more often as patients were exposed to more drug. For vetalizumab, this also follows our standard dosing rule for optimization. So typically there's eight weeks between the two 300 milligram doses. And to optimize this, you could go down to every four weeks. For ustekinumab or Solara, we have the UNIFIED trial as one of our trials. This again was a randomized controlled trial. It evaluated patients with ulcerative colitis. And this again was more set up to evaluate the efficacy of different dosing schemes for ustekinumab, but then they also evaluated pharmacokinetic outcomes as well. They were assessing clinical response at eight weeks in this trial. And you can see from the graph, as the serum concentration of the drug increased that was measured at eight weeks, patients, there's a higher proportion of patients that were able to achieve clinical remission at week eight. And looking at the graph, so patients with really low levels, only about 40% of those were able to achieve clinical response. But then when we go to the end of the spectrum where patients were at a higher trough level, up to almost eight, 70 to 80% of those patients were able to achieve clinical response. So again, it's more of a dose exposure response relationship that we're looking at for these drugs. For ustekinumab, this again follows our standard optimization strategy of decreasing the dosing interval. So in maintenance phase, we would normally do eight weeks between doses, and then to optimize, we could go down to every four weeks. On the proactive side of the non-anti-TNF-alpha agents, this is really not supported yet. We don't have a lot of data yet to use proactive monitoring for these agents. And this moves me to my third assessment question. So it starts with a case, and then you'll have options after the question. So SK is a 34-year-old patient with ulcerative colitis who's been prescribed adalimumab every two, 40 milligrams every two weeks. They have been taking it for up to six months and initially experienced some symptom improvement. However, over the past two months, their symptoms have started to worsen. So we check our drug levels and antibody levels. We find that the adalimumab trough comes back at 12 and a hint, the trough goal that we target is eight to 12. And then adalimumab antibodies were not detected. So based on those results and the patients not, not having a response to therapy, what changes would you recommend or what intervention would you make on this medication? All right. I will say that I will agree with the majority again. So in this case, um, the correct answer would be to discontinue adalimumab and initiate vetalizumab. The reason that answer A is incorrect so what we're seeing from those results that the patient has, they have a therapeutic drug level, but no development of antibodies. So that would indicate that they're having a mechanistic failure. So we're not targeting the underlying pathophysiology that's going on. So A is incorrect because infliximab and adalimumab are both TNF, anti-TNF alpha agents. So that would not be correct. We'd want to move to a different biologic class. B is incorrect because we know that we have therapeutic drug levels, so increasing the frequency is not really going to do much for us at that point. And then D is incorrect because adding on azathioprine won't necessarily help us in a case where we don't have antibodies that have developed. So C is correct because vetalizumab is in a totally different biologic class for uh, as compared to adalimumab. And then very quick, lastly, something I wanted to touch on because this is a huge portion and huge barrier for 
being able to optimize therapy for these patients is cost. So thinking about the lab tests that we order for monitoring therapy, the therapeutic drug levels, those have a cost associated. So considering that, and then also the barriers to obtaining insurance coverage, because a lot of these optimization strategies, when we increase dosing, we're actually going above and beyond what the standard recommendation doses. So we're using off-label dosing. So that's always going to be an issue with getting insurance approval. However, there are various meta-analyses that do make the argument that optimization upfront is actually more cost effective than our old conventional strategies for optimizing dosing. So there's an argument either way for, or there is a positive argument for wanting to optimize these patients. And then some take-home points. So therapeutic drug monitoring helps us assess inflammatory bowel disease treatments. Our anti-TNF-alpha agents have the most support for both reactive and proactive monitoring, whereas non-anti-TNF-alpha agents mostly have evidence for reactive monitoring. Generally, biologic agents are optimized by decreasing the dosing frequency. And then um, with the exception of infliximab, where you can increase the dose. And then ultimately, cost may be the biggest barrier for our ability to optimize therapy for these patients. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, subscribe using iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Thank you for listening to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds. Join us weekly for more exciting clinical pharmacology topics. Thank you.